choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things. Not because they are easy, but because they are hard. In God's speed, John Glenn. Roger, zero J, and I feel fine. Get my feet up. Okay, I'm out. How does it feel for the United States to be the new record holder? At last, huh? When that baby light, there's no doubt about it. Liftoff. We have a liftoff. 32 minutes past the hour. Liftoff on Apollo 11. Hello and welcome. This is Michael Annis, and you're listening to episode 131 of the Space Rocket History Podcast. And now, Apollo 1 Astronauts. As 1967 dawned, The goal set by John F. Kennedy no longer seemed impossible. Rather, the U.S. was almost there. The U.S. still had much work to do before we actually could land an American on the moon, but we were close. Before the last Gemini mission ended, NASA selected three men who would fly the maiden Apollo voyage, scheduled for February 1967. Virgil Gus Grissom was selected to command the mission. He had been on flights in Mercury and Gemini. Ed White was the first American to walk in space, and Roger Chaffee had not been to space at all yet. I last covered biographical information on Gus Grissom from his Gemini 3 mission. Rather than repeat information already covered in previous episodes, I will start with a brief study of Grissom's Gemini 3 mission and then move on to his Apollo 1 mission. Let's begin with a clip from Jim Lovell describing Gus Grissom during this time period. Gus was a charger. He was a very macho type. He was really the typical test pilot. But he also had go fever. You know, he wanted to get it going. He wanted to get up there and do the job. On March 23, 1965, Jiminy 3, also known as Molly Brown, successfully lifted off from Pad 19 with Gus Grissom and John Young at the controls. Gus carried with him two specifically engraved watches for his sons, Scott and Mark. Betty's souvenir was a new diamond ring hung safely and sound on a string around Gus's neck. The main objectives for the five-hour flight were to test all the Gemini spacecraft's major operating systems and to determine if controlled maneuvering of the spacecraft was possible. Being able to change orbit and flight path was crucial to upcoming rendezvous missions, so a lot was riding on Molly Brown's performance, and she did not let her crew down. Grissom commented on the mission, saying, quote, To our intense satisfaction, we were able to carry out these maneuvers almost exactly as planned. The longer the crew flew, the more jubilant we became. 
we had a really fine spacecraft, one we could be proud of in every respect. End quote. Scientific experiments were also part of the flight plan, and Grissom had to perform one of them. According to Grissom, quote, it was pathetically simple. All I had to do was turn a knob, which would activate a mechanism, which would fertilize some sea urchin eggs to test the effects of weightlessness on living cells. Grissom continued, Maybe I had too much adrenaline pumping, but I twisted that handle so hard I broke it off. End quote. Ironically, at the same time as Gus was performing his test, a ground controller was conducting an identical experiment on Earth. The controller broke off his handle as well. Another experiment that needed to be completed was testing the new array of specially packaged space food. Because future Gemini missions were scheduled to last several days, supplying the crew with an adequate diet was critical. John Young had been assigned to conduct this important experiment. Grissom constantly complained about the dehydrated delicacies concocted by NASA's nutritionalist. He was willing to eat the reconstituted food only because there was nothing else available. Or so he thought. Gus had no idea that John Young had more than just souvenirs stowed in his spacesuit pockets. This is how it went, according to Gus. Quote, I was concentrating on our spacecraft's performance when suddenly John asked me, You care for a corned beef sandwich, Skipper? If I could have fallen out of my couch, I would have. Sure enough, he was holding an honest-to-John corned beef sandwich. John had managed to sneak the deli sandwich, which was one of my favorites, into his pocket. As Gus sampled the treat, tiny bits of rye bread began floating around the pristine cabin, and the crew was just about knocked over by the pungent aroma of corned beef wafting through the small confines of the spacecraft. Gus continued, quote, After the flight, our superiors at NASA let us know, in no uncertain terms, that non-man-rated corned beef sandwiches were out for future space missions. But John's deadpan offer of this strictly non-regulated goodie remains one of the highlights of the flight for me. End quote. Molly Brown splashed down at 2.15 p.m., after flying 80,000 miles and completing three successful orbits around the Earth. Grissom and Young were ecstatic about their textbook flight. Gus said, quote, I do know that if NASA had asked John and me to take Molly Brown back into space the day after splashdown, we would have done it with pleasure. 
she flew like a queen, did our unsinkable Molly, and we were absolutely sure that her sister craft would perform as well. End quote. Now here's Wally Sherall commenting on the flight of Gemini 3. Gus was very intense, very, very intense about the problem he had with his Mercury flight, very intense about sort of disappearing out of the system. So he made his Gemini flight a perfect Gemini flight. The flight of Gemini 3 was followed by an enthusiastic reception and parade at Cape Kennedy. The following day, Grissom and Young, accompanied by their families, flew to Washington, D.C. President Lyndon Johnson awarded both men NASA's Distinguished Service Medal. For Grissom, personally, the finest award he received was the opportunity for he and his wife and two sons to meet and shake hands with President of the United States and, of course, Lady Bird Johnson and with Vice President Humphrey as well. Grissom said, quote, It was, I know, a moment that Scott and Mark Grissom will remember for the rest of their lives. End quote. Ticker tape parades in New York and other cities followed. After all, the Russian space spectaculars, the United States was back in the manned spaceflight business with probably the most sophisticated spacecraft in the world, or out of the world. Gus and John's reception was the public's way of expressing pride in a national achievement. Molly Brown's flight was followed by nine other manned missions. Each flight gave the program a wealth of knowledge, techniques, and much-needed confidence. With each successful mission, NASA advanced closer to the moon. Grissom remained involved with the Gemini program for quite some time, including several months of training as backup commander for the Gemini 6 mission. At the same time, Work on the Apollo spacecraft was already well in progress. In March 1966, NASA publicly announced that Gus Grissom had been assigned as commander for the first Apollo Earth orbit mission. Ed White would serve as senior pilot, and Roger Chaffee was named pilot. Jim McDivitt, David Scott, Russell Swigert were assigned as backups. By the time Gus was freed up from his duties on Project Gemini to jump on board the Apollo program, the spacecraft and its systems were well advanced in terms of production and testing. Unlike Gemini, Grissom and his crew inherited a spacecraft that had been designed for them, but not with them. Here's Gus talking about the upcoming flight of Apollo 1. I'm real pleased to be on a first flight, looking forward to it. I just now started getting into the uh, Apollo systems and looking at Apollo spacecraft and trying to forget everything I knew about Gemini. 
I think we've got a real good crew with Ed and Roger. Now, Gus did not believe Apollo 1 would be his last flight. In fact, he intended to go to the moon. Gus, uh, what do you think your chances are for an Apollo flight? I think they're pretty good. I expect to be around for most of the Apollo program. You think you will one day make one of the trips to the moon then? Uh, I'm planning on it. Although Grissom, Young, and Chaffee did not have a hand in the basic design process of their spacecraft, they were able to exert some influence on Spacecraft 12. Gus, Ed White, and Roger Chaffee, along with their supporting staff of engineers and technicians, participated directly in the progressive design and manufacturing reviews and inspections as Spacecraft 12 neared completion. But some of the things Gus saw, he did not like. As the pressure mounted and dissatisfaction grew, Grissom, for the first time, began to bring his work problems home. Normally, when he was at home, Gus did not want to be with the space program. He would rather just be playing around with the kids. But now, he was tense about it. The arrival of Spacecraft 12 to the Cape only brought more problems. It soon became obvious that many designated engineering changes were incomplete. The Environmental Control System unit leaked like a sieve and needed to be removed from the module. As a result, the launch schedule was delayed by several weeks. The Apollo simulator, which was used for training purposes, had its own set of problems and was not in any better shape than the actual spacecraft itself. According to astronaut Walter Cunningham, quote, We knew that the spacecraft was, you know, in poor shape relative to what it ought to be. We felt like we could fly it, but let's face it, it just wasn't as good as it should have been for the job of flying the first manned Apollo mission. End quote. Nonetheless, the crew made do with what they had, and by mid-January 1967, preparations were being made for the final pre-flight test of Spacecraft 12. Around this time, Gus was asked how he felt about the risk of flying in space. This was his answer. There's always a possibility that uh, uh, you can have a catastrophic failure, of course. This can happen on any fight. It can happen on the, on the last one as well as the first one. So uh, you just plan as best you can to take care of uh, all of these eventualities. And uh, you get a well-trained crew and you go fly. With his eyes open, Gus knew and accepted the risk. On January 22, 1967, Grissom made a brief stop at home before returning to the Cape. A citrus tree grew in their backyard with lemons on it as big as grapefruits. Gus yanked the largest lemon he could find off the tree. 
Manny had no idea what he was up to and asked Gus what he planned to do with that lemon. Gus said, quote, I'm going to hang it on that spacecraft. End quote. Then Gus grimly kissed Betty goodbye. Betty knew that Gus would be unable to return home before the crew conducted the plugs-out test on January 27th. What she did not know was that January 22nd would be the last time Gus was there at his house. Okay, now that we have caught up on Grissom's life to the point of Apollo 1, let's turn our attention to Ed White. Jiminy 4 was Ed White's first spaceflight. Perhaps that is why he commented just before the flight that he did not feel entirely safe in a spacecraft. But even with that lack of confidence, White gave his trademark thumbs-up sign to the crowd that had gathered on June 3, 1965, and he boarded Gemini 4 with Commander Jim McDivitt. They lifted off from Pad 19 at 10.16 a.m. Now, Ed was a devout Methodist, and he brought three special items to carry with him during his planned EVA. First, a St. Christopher's medal. Second, a gold cross. And third, a Star of David. When asked why he took those items, Ed replied, I had a great faith in the people and the equipment that we were using for the mission. I had a great faith in myself and especially in Jim. And also, I think I had a great faith in my own God. Ed continued, quote, So the reason I took these symbols was that I think this was the most important thing I had going for me. And I felt that while I couldn't take one for every religion in the country, I could take the three I was most familiar with. Perhaps that's why Buzz Aldrin commented about Ed in this manner. Called him a straight arrow. And that's what he was. He was directed toward what the objective really was. Now back to the highlights of the flight. At the beginning of the second orbit, Jim and Ed started to go through the checklist for the various EVA equipment. Within the cramped confines of the spacecraft, they unpacked White's emergency oxygen chest pack, his specially designed thermal gloves, and the bulky 25-foot combination primary oxygen umbilical and tether cord. The seven and one half pound maneuvering unit was unstowed and checked. The camera equipment, which would record White's historic walk, was assembled. The crew wanted to be very meticulous in their EVA preparations because it was the first U.S. walk in space. So, Ed and Jim wanted it to be perfect. As the time for the EVA drew near, the crew realized that they were starting to rush through the checklist. McDivitt made the call to delay the EVA until the third rendezvous in order to give them the time they needed to properly check and don the equipment. 
Now, this disappointed Ed, but he eventually agreed it had to be done. So the crew started from the beginning of the checklist and repeated the procedure using as much time as they needed to get it done. During the third revolution, the crew received a go-ahead for both decompression and EVA. Accordingly, the spacecraft's atmosphere was reduced to a vacuum and White's hatch was opened. As Ed White stood in his seat preparing for egress, he checked his camera equipment three times. Ed said that he wanted to make sure he didn't leave the lens cap on. He knew he might as well not come back if he did. At 2.45 p.m., as Gemini 4 passed beyond Hawaii, Ed White emerged through the hatch. He said there was no push-off whatsoever from the spacecraft. The spray maneuvering gun actually provided the impulse for him to leave the spacecraft. As Ed began his spacewalk, he became fully aware that all of his Vox transmissions were being heard by millions of people who were glued to their radios and TV sets. And he thought, what do you say to 194 million people when you're looking down at them from space? Then the solution became very obvious. Those listening on Earth didn't want him to talk to them. Instead, they wanted to hear what the astronauts were doing up there. So, what everyone heard was two test pilots conducting their mission in the best manner possible. Ed relayed that he did not experience any disorientation or sensation that he was falling, in spite of the fact that Jiminy 4 was whipping through space at speeds in excess of 17,500 miles per hour. White felt very little sensation of speed. He reported that the maneuvering unit was working well, and the only problem he had was there just simply was not enough fuel. Here's the clip. Captain, it's very easy to maneuver with the gun. The only problem I have is I haven't got enough fuel. Now that the fuel was exhausted in the hand unit, White had to rely on the 25-foot tether to maneuver himself. He soon discovered that the maneuvering unit provided much better control than the tether, and that moving was just more difficult and awkward without it. Ed was a photography buff, so next he turned his attention to capturing the spectacular views he was witnessing on film. He said, quote, I'm going to work on getting some pictures. I can sit out here and see the whole California coast, end quote. While White snapped away with his 35mm camera, Jim McDivitt took some photos of Ed as he came into full view of the window. As he maneuvered away, Ed accidentally bumped into the spacecraft, leaving a mark on McDivitt's window. The world delighted in hearing the banter between two friends as Jim stated, quote, You smeared up my windshield, you dirty dog. You see how it's all smeared up there? End quote. White's suit held up well, and the special helmet visor provided the necessary protection from the sun. White noted that 
the sun in space was not as blinding as it was on Earth. The entire spacewalk was progressing extremely well. It was clear that White was enjoying himself thoroughly as he exuberantly radioed, quote, I'm very thankful in having the experience to be first. This is fun. End quote. And here's another clip. This is the greatest experience I've ever Ed's final view during his spacewalk was of the state of Florida. He could see all the lower part of the state, the island chain of Cuba and Puerto Rico. But all too soon, the flight director ordered White back inside the Gemini, and America's first walk in space came to an end. No one was sorrier to see it end than Ed White. He radioed, quote, It's the saddest moment of my life. End quote. Now, without the benefit of the handheld propulsion unit, Ed needed extra time to return to the hatch. Here is where a bit of controversy occurred. Some of the experts contended that Ed's delay in getting back to the hatch was an indication that he had suffered from a kind of narcosis of the deep, or euphoria. But Ed insisted that this was not the case. Further, he said, quote, I can say in all sincerity and honesty that I enjoyed the EVA very much, and I was sorry to see it draw to a close, and I was indeed reluctant to come in. But when the word came through the EVA phase was over, I knew it was time to come in, and I did. There was no euphoria, but getting back into the cabin took just as much time as getting out. I had to do the same things, only in reverse order, handing my gear into Jim and so on. End quote. White had now achieved his goal of becoming the first man to propel himself in space. In addition, his spacewalk had lasted twice as long as Alexei Leonov's ten-minute excursion. Ed had felt many things during those twenty minutes, but the biggest thing was a feeling of accomplishment. Jiminy 4 made 62 orbits around the Earth, flying over 1.6 million miles before splashing down in the Atlantic. Skeptics had predicted that astronauts would suffer horrendous physical side effects from a long-duration flight and that the recovery crews would find either dead bodies or unconscious astronauts hovering on the brink of death once they opened the hatches. However, the recovery helicopter pilot saw a totally different sight. He saw a couple of kids playing on the beach, Splashing in the salt water. Ed White was doing some kind of exercise that resembled deep knee bends. Both astronauts appeared to be in fine shape, aside from a slight case of seasickness on Ed's part and being in a desperate need of a shower and shave. Commenting on their distinctive aroma after the flight, Ed quipped, Quote, I thought we smelled fine. It was all those people on the carrier that smelled strange. 
end quote. On board the recovery carrier WASP, Ed stated, quote, I felt so good I didn't know whether to hop, skip, jump, or walk on my hands, end quote. In fact, Ed's spirits were so high that he danced a jig on the way to the crew quarters. In spite of their good mood, the astronauts had experienced some practical concerns during their flight. They found the work-rest cycles to be inadequate. Thoughts about running out of water had caused the crew to be overly conservative in their water intake, putting them at risk for dehydration. In addition, White noted that about four or five hours after eating, he began to feel as if his energy level was going downhill in a more pronounced manner than it did on Earth. Each time he ate, he noted definitively that his energy level bounced up. Now those who knew Ed White were not at all surprised to learn that hunger pangs were his biggest discomfort during the flight. Ed was known to have the most voracious appetite in the entire astronaut corps. Although space doctors failed to find an ounce of fat on his 170-pound frame, White could put away two full-course dinners at one sitting and then ask for dessert with a straight face. Needless to say, it did not take Ed long to gain back the eight pounds he had lost during his flight. Upon returning to Houston, White and McDivitt received a grand welcome home. President Johnson took the opportunity to promote both men to the rank of lieutenant colonel and presented each of them with a NASA Exceptional Service Medal. Chicago played host to an enormous ticker tape parade. The University of Michigan awarded the newly created Honorary Doctorate Degree of Astronautical Science to both alumni. And after he received the degree, White, who was still trying to get adjusted to his new military title, joked, I can hardly get used to people calling me Colonel. I know in a million years I'll never get used to people calling me Doctor. Finally, White and McDivitt, along with their families, were asked to represent the United States at the Paris Air Show. In spite of the presence of Russia's pride and joy, Yuri Gagarin, the U.S. Gemini Space Twins captured a great deal of media attention and put the U.S. manned space program back on the map. Based in part on the quality and strength of his EVA performance, Ed White was selected as senior pilot for the first Apollo flight. Grissom expressed a great deal of satisfaction with White, saying, quote, Ed is a real hard driver. I don't care what kind of job you give Ed, he's going to get it done. He's going to get it done and finished. End quote. Ed valued Grissom's experience and was pleased to discover that he and his commander tended to think along the same lines about many things. As the crew prepared for the Apollo 1 flight, they encountered numerous glitches and setbacks with the Apollo spacecraft. 
The crew stayed focused and dealt with the problems as they came up. In spite of the frustrations and delays, they never failed to keep their sense of humor intact. Well aware of Ed White's tremendous appetite, Grissom joked that during the Apollo 1 flight, he planned to keep his personal food supply under lock and key to discourage Ed from sneaking samples from his meals. Shortly before the final series of spacecraft testing began, the crew was asked to pose for pictures wearing their spacesuits, as photographers attempted to get the perfect shot of the first Apollo crew, Grissom reached over and tugged at a cord on White's spacesuit, causing its bright orange May Wests to suddenly balloon to life. As the crew entered the Apollo 1 command module for the plugs out test on January 27, 1967, Ed White took the center seat. Towards the end of the test, they would be practicing emergency egress procedures, and Ed would be responsible for opening the hatch by removing the bolts which sealed it shut. It was a difficult maneuver, because Ed needed to reach over his head to loosen the bolts with a ratchet. The inner hatch was extremely heavy, but Ed, who was known for his great strength, had become accustomed to handling it by repeatedly practicing the opening procedure. Although the well-trained crew had practiced the egress drills numerous times, they never had managed to perform the duty within the 90 seconds recommended time frame. Thanks for listening to this archive episode of the Space Rocket History Podcast. If you are financially able, please support the podcast by going to the homepage spacerockethistory.com and clicking on the orange donate button or the Patreon link. Thanks.